This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR, pop culture consultant, uh, expert, I, I'm sorry, uh, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. Uh, here is the latest out of NBC News. Months ago, NBC News chairman Andy Lack sent the following note to our organization. Dear colleagues, on Monday night, we received a detailed complaint from a colleague about inappropriate sexual behavior in the workplace by Matt Lauer. It represented, after serious review, a clear violation of our company's standards. As a result, we have decided to terminate his employment. While it is the first complaint about his behavior in the over 20 years he has been at NBC News, we were also presented with reason to believe this may not have been an isolated incident. Our highest priority is to create a workplace environment where everyone feels safe and protected and to ensure that any actions that run counter to our core values are met with consequences no matter who the offender. We are deeply saddened by this turn of events, but we will face it together as a news organization and do it in as transparent a manner as we can. That is the statement from our chairman, Andy Lack, and we just learned this moments ago, just this morning. As I'm sure you can imagine, we are devastated and we are still processing all of this. And I will tell you right now, we do not know more than what I just shared with you, but we will be covering this story as reporters, as journalists, I'm sure we will be learning more details in the hours and days to come. And we promise we will share that with you. Mm -hmm. And Hoda, I mean, you know, for the moment, all we can say is that we are heartbroken. I'm heartbroken for Matt. He is my dear, dear friend and my partner. And he is beloved by many, many people here. And I'm heartbroken for the brave colleague who came forward to tell her story and any other women who have their own stories to tell. Mm-hmm. And we are grappling with a dilemma that so many people have faced these past few weeks. How do you reconcile your love for someone with the revelation that they have behaved badly? Mm-hmm. And I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that this reckoning that so many organizations have been going through is important. It's long overdue. And it must result in workplaces where all women, all people mm-hmm. feel safe and respected. As painful as it is this moment in our culture and this change had to happen. Yeah, it did. This is a a very tough morning for both of us. Um, I've known Matt for 15 years and I've loved him as a friend and as a colleague. And again, just like you were saying, Savannah, it's hard to reconcile what we are hearing with the man who we know who walks in this uh, building every single day. We were both woken up with the news kind of pre-dawn and we're trying to process it and trying to make sense of it and it'll take some time for that. Yeah, we're processing it with all of you at home. Mm -hmm. And we promise to be transparent and be straightforward and continue this important conversation. Absolutely. And there's no real way to do this, but this show has been on the air for more than 65 years and we're here because of you. We're Mm -hmm. supposed to bring you the news, so we're going to do that. We're going to keep doing it, doing it together, mm-hmm. all of us and the crew and people that love this show. Yep. And so we will go on yes, we will. with the news. All right. Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, uh, Principal Alyssa Freeman PR with us now. Uh, Alyssa, your thoughts? Wow. You know, yesterday, Scott, you and I talked about, you know, what's next under mm. this yeah. category? The next domino um, to fall. What is the next domino to fall? And I said to you yesterday, it would have to be Blockbuster. Yeah. And I would say that that fulfills that prophecy. Hmm. You know, I was making breakfast, I had the TV on, and then I see Savannah Guthrie come up with this, and I honestly stopped what I was doing and gasped. Hmm. And, you know, the the speed, like I am sure the investigation was not done in 24 hours. I'm yeah. sure that this that this has been ongoing for maybe weeks days, weeks, a month. Who and, knows? and there appears to be more than one situation, although well, that, that we don't know. Well, exactly. And I, and I will say that I do believe that Matt Lauer, not as bad as Harvey Weinstein, but I will say that if there is more than one isolated incident, there are lots of people who knew that this was going on. Yeah. And lots of people who turned a blind eye and lots of people who enabled it. So That's my it, next question to you in regard to what we just heard. Uh, boy, uh, enough about them. What about the victim? And do you think that they did know? Well, I'm sure that this, you know, if, if there's more than one isolated, if there's more than one incident, then maybe there were ongoing incidents with various numbers of people. 
And, you know, when I read sort of like insider media blogs and whatnot, some of this behavior has been talked about and whispered about for years now. And what we're talking about is a, you know, a systemic change where none of this is going to be tolerated anymore. And when you're talking about somebody like Matt Lauer, you know, Harvey Weinstein is one person. Harvey Weinstein is sort of, you know, uh, a figure, very industry insider. What he did was absolutely horrible. Um, people generally understand what he did more than what he does for a living other than he produces movies. Matt Lauer is somebody who was beamed into your living room every day for the past 15 years. And even in my own groups, when I, you know, put out there, you know, Matt Lauer got fired, you know, everybody knew. And everybody had some sort of the, you know, initial thought that they were devastated. But then you think, you know, what actually did he do? So this is this sort of runs through a grief cycle, to be quite honest, um, where we are shocked, we are surprised, and then we'll probably, de- you know, delve right into being appalled. How long can we keep being surprised? I, you know, as, as, much, you know as, as long as these things keep getting revealed. And, you know, what surprises us is that stuff like this has been going on for years or maybe even decades. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, what, what are the parameters of what is considered to be, you know, um, untoward behavior in the workplace? What is accepted, what is tolerated, and what should not be accepted? Mm-hmm. And I was talking earlier today to a friend of mine who's a labor relations uh, lawyer who um, used to work within an HR department for a large company. And she says, you know, in a lot of cases, companies have a very loosey-goosey definition of what harassment is. And they don't properly define it. So is it the guy who keeps telling the same dirty joke for 30 years and everybody just laughs because that's just what he does until someday someday somebody calls him on it and says, and suddenly it's not right anymore? It's almost like, you know, companies really need to better define what is inappropriate behavior and go because it's all on a continuum, right? Let me so, let me stop you there, Alyssa. Yeah. How do you define it when it seems that it's constantly changing? How do you gauge yesterday's crimes through today's lenses or today's I, lens? I, I, well, I think that it, it's I'm not, not saying that it's right, define. but, you know. I don't think it is hard to define. An inappropriate remark is an inappropriate remark. Mm-hmm. What's hard to define is, why is it inappropriate? Why can't you say it anymore? So it's almost like HR departments now have to drill down on those finer points of what um, exists under the category of harassment so that everybody is crystal clear as to what that means. Does it mean giving somebody flowers all the time and and embarrassing them as such? Does it mean uh, the ability to make inappropriate comments, or is it all, and and it also includes not or but it also includes the actual um, you know sex you know the sexual harassment of uh, of of a colleague. So people tend to look at that end game, Scott. They tend to look at well, he was uh, sexually harassing somebody or sexually violated them. That's what they look at. But what they don't look at were sort of like the death by a thousand cuts, like yeah. all those, like the remarks, yeah. the inappropriate touching. The what is the degree of inappropriateness? How do we define that? Well, we need to define it. Yeah, yeah. And inappropriateness does run the, the continuum. It's just not all always the bad stuff. So how do you, with all of these dominoes that we see spread on the floor before us, how do you tell which one's a Harvey Weinstein and which, I don't know, is there a milder version? Well, he's not a Harvey Weinstein, but he did this one thing that was inappropriate. And and, and again, I'm not putting any names to that. very interesting what you say is that, you know, how do you, how do we start to find, to define these things? You know, was he a Matt Lauer or was he a Harvey Weinstein? I mean, it says something to to our culture when we start to use, you know, proper names of celebrities that have fallen as a way to define what sexual harassment is. Yeah, interesting. You know, and, you know, today, you know, yesterday, Matt Lauer was uh, a hugely well-paid, well-liked, well-known, you know, morning TV journalist slash celebrity, and today... He's persona non grata. Did those two anchors that we heard speaking, do you think they knew anything of this? Well, that's hard to say. It's speculation, Scott, and, you know, the way that they talked about it. Um, and I saw that live, and they were honestly... Um, yeah, that would be that. incredibly difficult to be to go through. 
you know, and did they know about it? Maybe they had heard about it. Does that make them enablers? I don't know. Um, it's hard to say. I can't really speculate on that. So if you're, if you're a Matt Lauer, if you're a domino, what do you do? You hunker down. You have already probably signed off on a deal. You've probably already agreed that you're not going to sue the network. Because, you know, you can go back and sue the network and say that they did enable this uh, sort of behavior and there was nothing wrong with it for, for 15 years and then suddenly there is. You've probably been paid off very handsomely that you don't even have to worry about working again. But then you have to deal with your own personal fallout, the fall from grace, the, you know, wall-to-wall tele- television coverage that's going to happen in the news cycle that will probably go two, three, maybe four days. And, and as the details tend to drip out, that news cycle can uh, definitely extend. At the end of the day, your career likely, as you know, is over um, unless you do choose to fight the allegations. But from what I understand, uh, there is right now more, uh, there is right now one woman who has come forward. And the likelihood is that since she's opened up that door, uh, the floodgates will ensue. If you are a domino, is there any way to get ahead of this? I mean, we're certainly seeing Al Franken try to do that, although it'd be it too late. Well, I think that if you are a domino, you are shoring up. You probably have a statement written. You've probably gone back and talked with your lawyers in some very closed-door sessions. Well, it could be this person. It could be that person. In some cases, I've been reading about potential dominoes who have been phoning up these women and uh, that may come forward and either trying to pay them off now or um, threatening them that they should not come out. I mean, you know, when Harvey Weinstein knew that the New York Times was breathing down his neck, he had hired a uh, Israeli Mossad-like agent uh, agency of ex-Mossad uh, agents mm-hmm. and who uh, worked with the Israeli uh, army and knew how to do threatening and interrogation and whatnot, and started phoning up all his previous conquests and, you know, basically threatening them saying that, uh, you know, you better not come forward or else. So look what he tried to do, yet look what happened. Uh, Donald Trump tweets, Wow, Matt Lauer just fired from NBC for inappropriate sexual behavior in the workplace, but when will the top executives at NBC and Comcast be fired for putting out so much fake news? Check out Andy Lack's past. Wow. I mean, can you imagine? So why don't you just point the spotlight on yourself? Well, why don't you? I mean, people are now calling him, you know, sexual predator in chief. For him to even go on Twitter and say and point the finger when all he has to do is walk into the bathroom and look in the mirror. Yeah. And it must be just the it's just the biggest joke, Scott. It's as if that, the you know, access access Hollywood stuff didn't even happen and now I, I heard a report that he was claiming that that's fake. Well, of course, you know, fake news is anything you want. Why you wasn't it fake news when we all saw it way back when? Now it is. And, 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 you know, what, where are those women right now, the 14 women that came forward with uh, sexual allegations against Donald Trump? Where have they been? And, you know, have they been bought off? Have they yeah. been told to keep quiet? You know, honestly, you know, he has he, he was the, he was the first perpetrator. And it seems to me he's got this Teflon coating around him mm-hmm. that nothing seems to stick. So where is this going? We need an end game. We just can't, meaning society just can't sit here every day and watch and see what, what, what the next one is to fall. Uh, what is the end game? What will become of this? The end game is that I think all over you know, North America, if not the world, uh, large industry, any, any size industry, small companies, mid-sized companies, very, very large companies are all looking at their harassment policies. And are they too vague? Are they too broad? Do they need to be more granular? Do we need to have um, forums or town halls or small group settings where we go over the sexual harassment policy? There are companies that do this, and you have to sign that you attended this uh, these sessions. And yeah. whether you slept through it or whether you listened to it, you are held accountable for knowing what the policies are. So everybody has to review their policies. The only part that we haven't, the only segment that we haven't really heard about yet is industry yeah, itself. Yeah, good point. And, and why do you think that is? 
Well, I, I, I think that it's it's absolutely huge. I think for the, you know, I'd like to think, Scott, for the most part, that when there are um, complaints about sexual harassment, that there are investigations and that due course is provided. Um, in you know, in some cases, these are unionized workplaces places where the union has to represent the perpetrator as, as well as the complainant. Um, I think that people are loath to go to the media because they just don't want their names splashed yeah. all over the newspaper. I mean, honestly, unless you are bringing down somebody huge, like a captain of industry, this is all going to be kept very quiet. Yeah. Unless somebody decides to do some surveillance data and ask you how many sexual harassment complaints do you deal with in a year. So I don't think that data is captured, but if it was, I think that we would all be quite shocked. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR, talking about NBC's Matt Lauer fired over allegations of sexual misconduct. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Patrick Brown, Ontario PC leader, recent convention last weekend. Uh, lots have said over the past that uh, not much has been known about Patrick Brown or his policy. Uh, that has certainly changed uh, after this weekend. Let's bring in Patrick Brown, leader, of course, of the Ontario PCs. Hello, Patrick. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Hey, Scott, great to be back on your show. Uh, so uh, you just had the recent convention. Lots were saying that we don't know much about Patrick Brown. Then you come up with this nice glossy book. Now it's all there in front of us. Uh, the left are saying that uh, you're still going to be a cutter and that we have to fear the Mike Harris and some even comparing you to Donald Trump. And then on the right, they say you're not going far enough and that you're a red Tory. So who are you, Patrick Brown? How do we remember you? <laughs> Well, I'm a pragmatic, progressive uh, conservative, and that means um, we're going to be reasonable. We're going to be thoughtful. We took a while to build our platform by going out around the province and really listening to the best ideas. And I really believe we got a platform that's going to get Ontario back on track. We're going to do that by cutting middle-income taxes by 22.5%. We're going to give real help for child care, a 75% refund for child care expenses, a 12% cut to your hydro bill, the largest mental health commitment in Canadian provincial history, which is the dirty little secret in Ontario's healthcare system that we do a miserable job caring for uh, mental health, and the first ever Trust, Integrity, and Accountability Act. And, Scott, I've gone further. I understand platforms are just politicians' words. I've actually said and signed a declaration and a commitment in front of all the media, in front of all the party faithful, that if I can't get this done, if I can't get these commitments done in the first mandate of a PC government, then I I wouldn't seek a second. I'm putting my career on the line uh, in public service to say we're going to get this done for the people of Ontario. Well, you wouldn't be the first PC leader to put their uh, career on the line uh, by saying something, but I won't hold that against you, Patrick. Uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Others say this is politics, that when you get in there, you'll say, well, this isn't the way we seem, so really it's not like things aren't like they are, so I don't have to step down. What would you say to those that say the guarantee is politics? Well, other politicians haven't made that guarantee. Other politicians, uh, I'd I'd love to see uh, other uh, party leaders... uh, um, make a similar guarantee. So it's easy to criticize. I, I, I think signing this declaration um, is more than, than mere words. I'd also say that our numbers uh, are all the back pages of the platform, page 76. It's fully costed, all the allocations. Senior, senior economists in Canada have all said that the numbers are reasonable. Um, they, they, they add up. Uh, and I'm excited about this document. I, I, I really think, and you look at Ontario today, We've been a have-not province for eight years. Our credit's been downgraded three times. First time in my lifetime, Scott, our credit's worse than Quebec's. We know we can do better. We know this province can do better, and I really believe this platform is the recipe to get this province back on track. Uh, you're saying a, two, a 22% uh, tax cut. Who is getting that 22%? Liberals are pointing to that and saying, uh, show us who's getting this. So it's targeted towards the middle class. If you're making under 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 100000 uh, the tax savings will be 25%. If you make between 100 and 200,000, it will be a 20% uh, tax cut. For those making over 200,000, it will be a 7% tax cut. Everyone will benefit uh, under our tax relief plan. Um, and by the way, that includes small businesses. We're also cutting small business taxes by 28.5% to really support our job creators that fill uh, really 
I, I really, really struggling with, with with provincial liberal policies. So, you know, this this is exciting tax relief that I hope uh, will kickstart our. Uh, um, our economy, but also give relief to middle-class families that so, are feeling beleaguered under this government. So middle-class families are going to see a 22% decrease in their income tax? Or in their tax, well, it, rather? In your ta- it, how, it, how are you going to divide it, this out? It's actually more than that, because if you add, there's also an, an Ontario sales tax credit that helps the um, lowest-income families. So on average, uh, if the income is under 100000 uh it will be a 25% savings. Not just 22, 25% savings. So we're in debt up to our eyeballs, Patrick. That's all we keep hearing. How are we going to pay for this? So uh, 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 there's, there's a few ways we're able to achieve this. Uh, one, we're going to do a value-for-money audit um, of all government uh, ministries. And so what that means is for every dollar we spend at Queen's Park, we're going to try to find uh, two cents, two pennies in savings. And I know the Liberals say there's no waste, but Scott, every day I'm at Queen's Park, I see new examples of waste. $8 billion spent on e-health with nothing to show for it. $2 billion wasted on gas plants. Hundreds of thousands of dollars on giant rubber ducks. A bridge on Pickering. They built part of the bridge upside down or closer to home. I look on the 403. They were repaving the 403 every two years instead of every 15 years. So when you're stuck in traffic, waiting to come, waiting to come home, knowing that because of their incompetence, they're ripping up the road prematurely, that's the type of waste that I'm going to clean up. And by the way, it's not just the PC saying this, it's the Auditor General. The Auditor General, in her recommendations, said because we don't measure performance and outcomes, there is huge waste as up to 25% beyond what we should be spending. So I think it's going to be very reasonable to find those savings of two cents on every taxpayer dollar. But we're also, we're also going to end the Liberals' cap-and-trade slush fund. You know that fund they set up to give things like grants for buying luxury cars like uh, uh, Tesla's, that that liberal slush fund, um, we're going to stop and we're going to return it to the people of Ontario in broad-based tax relief. Uh, Let's go to cap and trade. Uh, I I always found it uh, odd that uh, the Prime Minister picks a carbon tax, the the, uh, Premier picks cap and trade and loops us in with California and Quebec with some sort of economy that I still don't understand, no matter how many times it's explained to me. How can you or can you reverse cap and trade? I mean, there's another auction coming up very soon. What happens to all those companies that paid money for these things? So cap-and-trade has been an unmitigated uh, disaster. Uh, I'm going to honor uh, the accommodations that companies have, have, have purchased, the credits they have purchased, but I'm going to unwind it. Um, the reason I'm going to exit the Western Climate Initiative and cap-and-trade is Kathleen Wynne signed us on to a scheme that, that has us buying green credits from California, it has a business in Hamilton subsidizing a business in Beverly Hills. I don't know in what world she thought this was fiscally responsible for the province of Ontario, um, but the fact we'd be sending hundreds of millions and eventually billions out of this province is not something I can ever support. So we're going to end this cap-and-trade mistake. I'd also note that the government's own cost-benefit analysis by David Sawyer said the emission reductions aren't actually going to happen in Ontario. They'd happen in California. So if this is about climate change, this does not even help Canada meet its climate change uh, goals. So this, this is a mess, and we're going to clean it up. Uh, can you convert a cap-and-trade into a carbon tax without it costing us? Absolutely. And actually, if you look at um, the long-term estimates on cap-and-trade, it, it will be $97 a ton by 2030. So not only does this reduce more emissions uh, in Ontario, but it's actually more affordable. And so exiting cap-and-trade is a big win for the province of Ontario. What do you say to those in your party that don't even want a carbon tax? The reality is it is the federal uh, uh, law of the land, uh, and uh, um, Ontario ha- does have to comply with that. And, and w- what I'd say is you have two choices. you got Kathleen Wynne, who's going to use it for a cash grab for her liberal pet projects, and you've got the PC approach that says we're actually going to reduce emissions, but we're not going to use climate change as a cash grab for government. Anything collected is going to be given back to the people in broad-based tax relief, and that's a conservative response to climate change. Talking about electricity, uh, we certainly know how much our rates have gone up over the last decade or so, and, uh, and of course, the refinance punting this down uh, to the next generation. Uh, you're claiming to have a 12% reduction in the average hydro bill. How can we do that? 
Well, and, and desperately needed. As, as you know, we have among the highest hydro bills in, in North America now. The Liberals have tripled hydro rates. So what we're going to do is we're going to return the hydro uh, dividend to the people of Ontario, the Hydro One dividend. Um, it, that That's not the government's money, it's the people's money. We're going to shift the conservation funding, uh, which is really social policy, off the off the hydro bill. But more importantly, Scott, I think you're going to like this one, because I've listened to a few of your shows. We're going to scrap the unmitigated disaster uh, of the Green Energy Act. Uh, the fact that we keep on signing contracts for energy we do not need um, is beyond ridiculous. We wasted five, just on water power we spilled last year, Scott, we could have powered 500,000 homes. And this government keeps on signing them. They just proceeded with fit five, 390 more contracts. So I'm accepting the recommendations from the Ontario Society of Professional Engineers of how we can better align generation and consumption, and that results uh, in significant savings on, on your hydro bill. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I, I, I just want to stress this. We've overpaid on renewable energy by, by $9.2 billion. The, the companies that got a lot of these contracts donated $1.3 million to the Ontario Liberal Party. It, it, it is an ugly secret at Queen's Park, uh, and I'm going to make sure that practice ends. Uh, some any energy experts, I can think of Tom Adams, who's been on this show, wasn't that impressed with your, with your energy plan and said that it still isn't transparent, that it's still a shell game, there's too much... Too much uh, there's not enough transparency here. We don't know where it's going. Well, you know, yeah, you, you, you can't please um, everyone. But I know Tom is happy that we're scrapping the uh, the Green Energy Act, which is really the Bad Contracts Act. Um, in terms of the the, I think Tom was hoping we would uh, cancel the uh, unfair hydro plan. Um, but I, I've got to be responsible to the taxpayers in this province, Scott. And we we did look at that because it's, it's a disaster. We're borrowing money. Um, to prop up the government's books right before right before the election, I did vote against it in the legislature. Uh, but by the time we form office, it will already be halfway done. Hmm. Um, so it'll be too costly then to uh, to pull apart. I wish the Liberals didn't do it. I wish they didn't do something so short sighted. Um, but they've done this. Uh, they've done this, and it, it will be past the fact uh, where, where 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 we can. Are you there, Patrick? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm just sorry. I just the... you dipped up there just a little bit. Just finish your sorry, last sentence again. Yeah. By the time we we get uh, into office, it would be too costly to unravel. I wish the Liberals didn't do it. Um, it's gonna it's gonna cost us four billion dollars in additional interest. Uh, um, but you know, it's all about the election, unfortunately. And and they and they unfortunately did this just to prop up their books before the election. Is there a way to make this system more transparent? Absolutely. And, and you know, we're going to make sure that all the costs are transparent on the hydro bill. Um, I want the contracts to be public. And right now, all these bad contracts, no one knows. And so I'm saying those contracts need to be public. When the government is as secretive as it is, that's when bad deals happen. So I'm going to make sure that it's all transparent. Uh, lots of chatter in Hamilton, uh, as you know, in regard to our LRT. Uh, a proposal just came back from the government on uh, whether HSR should run it or not, which has delayed the project. Lots are concerned with an election coming up, uh, what the fate of the LRT is. What do you have to say to Hamiltonians about that? I talked about this in Hamilton last year. Um, I've been on city council myself, two terms in the city of Barrie. And, you know, I hate it when Queen's Park tells a city what's the most important transit project. And you get people at Queen's Park wanting to tell Hamil- uh, uh, residents in Hamilton uh, what's best for them without even setting foot in Hamilton. So it's going to be up to Hamiltonians to decide what's best for Hamilton. And as long as it's the will of Hamilton City Council, I'm going to continue to support it. And right now there's a clear vote of Hamilton City Council saying that uh, this is their top transit priority. Um, and, I, and I will make sure those dollars are there and that we honour the commitment the province of Ontario has made. Um, those dollars uh, will be there, um, and uh, that's a commitment I've made. Uh, also, one more, Patrick. I want to ask you about health care. It seems that uh, this government has uh, created some sort of conflict between nurses, doctors, health care, uh, painting doctors as the rich, this sort of thing, uh, and uh, not paying their share. Uh, what will you do to try to uh, not only help the health care system in Ontario, which is obviously suffering, but try to uh, mend relations with doctors and nurses and such? Well, the way the provincial government has disparaged, uh, the way the Liberals have disparaged physicians uh, uh, on the front lines is uh, so unbecoming. 
uh, you know, I've got a great relationship with our province's physicians and nurses, and um, they're going to have an ally um, in a in a PC government. You know, frankly, it's the nurses and the physicians who know best how to fix the healthcare system with the overcrowding we have here today. You know, our healthcare policy, a lot of it, that is directly from our physicians and nurses on investments in mental health, on the low income. A dental program for seniors on the investments in long-term care to deal with the ALC rates, alternative level of care rates within hospitals. I know there's a lot of excitement on the healthcare policy we put forward amongst the medical community, and I'm really, I'm really keen to repair that relationship that is so damaged right now with the with the current government. Uh, again, what you've uh, put forward I- from the convention last weekend and uh, in your guarantee and such. Uh, many were thought. Many were expecting more cuts than gifts. It seems to be there's more gifts than cuts. What do you say to those that say, "Oh, this is just to get him elected," and then once he gets in, it's just uh, you know, it's the old uh, PCs back again? Well, I, I, I think the opposition needs to make up their mind. They can't say it's not enough cuts and too many cuts in in in, in the same breath. Uh, you know, this is well thought out. It's reasonable. Um, it's it's thoughtful. We did our due diligence. You know, there you got Kathleen Wynne coming up with new policy on the back of a napkin. You've got the NDP doing it within the, the, the back rooms of, of Queen's Park. And we actually did the opposite. We went outside of Queen's Park. We went to town halls. We had round tables in every corner of the province, the most policy resolutions we've ever taken to our party membership. It was a true grassroots process. And that's why I put it in writing. That's why I put this giant document out there to the people of Ontario so they know exactly what I'm going to do. It's fully costed. It's affordable. It's been backed up by the senior economists in this country. uh, And I'm proud to stand behind it and to tell the Ontarians that every single word in this document, we're going to make sure we get done for the people of Ontario. One last thing, Patrick, for the last two elections, uh, many Ontarians thought it would be the Liberals' last. Uh, the last two elections, we've seen uh, PCs shoot, them the fo- shoot themselves in the foot in the, in the last dying weeks before the election. What do you have to do to take this home? Well, first of all, you can never underestimate the, the Liberals. They are politically corrupt. They will say anything, do anything uh, to cling to power. And we saw that with blowing $2 billion on a gas plant. Right now, they've taken government advertising revenue up to a record $57 million. They've got third-party groups, friends of the government, that are spreading a smear on, on, on TV commercials. So you can never underestimate the Liberals. They are clever, um, tactical, uh, political operatives. Um, but I'm just going to hustle. I'm going to work my heart out going around the province like I am right now. I'm taking a bus around the province and talking about my people's guarantee in every community that I can. And I think the people of Ontario really want change, and we just have to make sure that uh, um, you know we don't, we don't let the Liberals fool us again. Patrick Brown has been with us, Ontario PC leader. Patrick, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. And whenever you're around, bring that bus in here. We'd love to chat with you. Sounds great. You can count on it. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've, uh, and maybe you have or maybe you haven't heard anything about Bitcoin. Uh, If you're a techie or if you're from the younger generation, you obviously know what this is about. Uh, It's a, it's a, a cryptocurrency that has topped... Uh, $11,000 in value. It hit $10,000 yesterday. However, there are concerns uh, with the cost of it rising, where it will go, and uh, who will pay the price, I guess, in the end. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He's with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Always appreciate it. My pleasure. And in interest of full disclosure, I do not own any Bitcoin. Why are you not? Why didn't you tuck a few bucks into this? You never know which way it's going to go. So my bottom line is I do not like any uh, pseudo-currency that does not have a central bank behind it. If I buy an American dollar, I buy a Canadian dollar, I buy a British pound, in essence, I'm buying into the economy behind that, the central bank behind that. Uh, the beautiful thing and the disappointing thing about Bitcoin is that it doesn't exist. There's no central bank. It's, it's truly why we call it a cryptocurrency. The crypto is short for cryptography. It doesn't exist. You can't actually get a coin or a, a dollar bill. They don't actually issue currency. It exists only in the world of computers. And because there's no central authority and there's no one watching over it, I think it's just too susceptible to manipulation, so I have stayed away from this like the plague. Tell everybody what it is. What is Bitcoin? So Bitcoin was created in about 2010. Um, 
there's a name, there's actually a Japanese-sounding name associated with it, but nobody thinks that person exists. It was created by a group of phantom, if you will, uh, uh, computer coders. Uh, they were looking for a currency that could be traded around the world without any interference from any kind of a government. Uh, the bookkeeping for this currency doesn't exist on any central server. It exists on thousands and thousands of computers around the world, each contributing a little bit of its horsepower to support Bitcoin as it goes. There are about 100,000 companies, retailers, other businesses that will accept a Bitcoin for payment, but really 80 to 90 percent of the people who put money into Bitcoin aren't using it as a currency or even as an exchange medium. They're just viewing it as a wonderful chance to make money. So at the start of this year, January 1st, 2017, Bitcoin was worth, quote, worth $1,000. Uh, yesterday it hit 10000 Earlier today it hit $11,000. My gosh, that's more than a 1,000% increase. If you're looking at putting your money in the bank and earning a half a percent, getting a 1,000% sure sounds pretty good. How can, mer- how can retailers, merchandisers, whatever, how do they accept this if the currency keeps fluctuating? I mean, my, mind you, it's fluctuating upward, but how long can you depend on that? Well, let, let me again break that into two chunks. It is fluctuating upward this year. But in its very brief life, on five separate occasions, it's gone the other direction and gone significantly. On five previous occasions in previous years, it's lost up to 80% of its value truly just overnight. Uh, and the question often is, what causes it to lose its value? But then the other question is, yes. what's causing it to go up in value? Yes. And that our problem is, we just don't know. Now, the most recent uh, interest in Bitcoin seems to have been spurred by the uh, political uncertainties in Zimbabwe. Now, I know that's going to strike you as really odd. Why should Zimbabwe have any impact on it? But some people who put their money into Bitcoin are looking for a safe harbor that is independent of an economy. So let's just assume you're a wealthy person in Zimbabwe, and you have the equivalent of millions of Zimbabwean dollars, but Mugabe might be going, he could be assassinated, maybe there's going to be a coup, and oh my gosh, if all that happens, what are those Zimbabwe dollars going to be worth? Probably next to nothing. So you would put your money someplace that you can use it, regardless of what's happening locally. Now that used to be gold. So we often see during strange times people cashing in their local currency and buying gold. Mm -hmm. That drives the price of gold up. But gold is a lovely place to park money, but you can't really do anything with it. In other words, if I walk into a store with a lump of gold, I can't exactly trade it for some groceries. Today, there's 100,000 retailers and other businesses that are prepared to sell you a hotel night stay as a fraction of a Bitcoin. So here they're parking their money and a lot of money in Africa because, again, there was a fear that there was going to be a... um, like a house of cards effect, Zimbabwe might go, then there might be a revolution someplace else, then another revolution. So a lot of wealthy people started buying it, and like anything, truly the law of supply and demand, there's a fixed number of yeah. these Bitcoins out there. So if everyone starts to buy them, uh, the price of it shoots up the way it did. And that's what's happened here, correct? It has happened here, but again, just to give you a sense of it, Scott, um, uh, Liz, your, your, your lovely uh, mm-hmm. coordinator, producer here, called me around... 10, 30, 11 o'clock this morning, and it crossed $11,000. Right now it's trading at $10,700. You lost $400 of Bitcoin in just the last three or four hours. And I do like to remind people that something can go up 1,000% in a year. Let me think about this. It can go down 1,000% in a year, too. And that's another reason why I don't like it as an investment. I work too hard for my dollars. I'm not prepared to, to risk it. But you're also right. If I had bought in back at the start of this, put a whole $100 into Bitcoin, my original $100 investment would now be worth $1.6 million. Uh, what about the quick gambler? Is that who's taking advantage of this then? We think so. We think there are speculators involved here. But here's another thing we're not sure of. Who actually is putting money into it? We think today there are roughly, oh, somewhere between 10 and 15 million users worldwide. Remember that the world's population is 7 billion people. Of those 7 billion people, roughly 15 million, sort of the population of Beijing, uh, is using, uh, have accounts and have, have bitcoins in their accounts. Now, why do they do this? Well, we also know that bitcoin has been very popular 
on something called, and doesn't this sound like a great name, the dark web. Yeah. The dark web is where nefarious things happen. So if I need to buy some drugs, if I'm going to have a hit on somebody I don't like, how do I pay for it? Well, it used to be briefcases full of cash, and we've all watched those shows where the, mm-hmm. you know, the forensic people come in and they touch the cash, and, oh, no, I got your fingerprints, I got your, your DNA, you're going to jail. In a world where this currency doesn't exist, there's no, no fingerprints. All you've got are uh, um, uh, IP addresses, home IP addresses, and even those can be laundered through a number of sites. So is this really a, a law of supply and demand? Is it speculation? Is it a Ponzi scheme? I was just about to say that, uh, Marvin. It, this sounds like a pyramid scheme. It, it really does. Well, it could be. See, we don't know because it's not regulated. But what I could do to drive the price up is, Scott, I could say to you, I've got a Bitcoin. I'm going to sell it to you for 10100 Then you turn around an hour later and sell it for 10200 and back and forth. And the next thing you know, because it's so thinly traded, yes, we've crossed $11,000. But does that represent true value or just a small number of people playing and manipulating the game? Again, in a world where we have as computers that we have and the hackers that we have and, and all those other kinds of things, I much prefer a currency that's got a central bank behind it than one that just says live and let live. Who doesn't? Would that suggest that it's dirty money, it's tax avoidance? Because most people would feel the same way you did. They don't want to lose their fortune. So what kind of person puts their money into well, this? Well, again, three or four different kinds. I mentioned one kind, the desperate person. You know, I'm in an economy that's shaky. I want to try to give my currency some value as I can use outside of my country over time. In the last few years, you, you probably don't remember this, but we had an issue like this in Cyprus where the banking system looked like it was going to collapse. Uh, again, it was five or six years ago, the Iceland's banking system looked like it was going to collapse. So relatively well-to-do people were looking for a safe haven. Again, could have gone gold. Now they often go Bitcoin. Then you have the nefarious people, the people who are doing businesses, perhaps in trafficking drugs or other things. They have to find a way to do their transactions you've got here. Then you have just the speculators. Um, I, I can't tell you the number of people over this year who've come up to me to say, what do you think about Bitcoin? You know, I'm thinking about buying a couple of coins the way they would have talked about buying a couple of shares in Apple once upon a time. Mm. Apple stock hasn't gone up this rate, so I can see why you're attracted. If you're going to do it, if you're going to speculate in it, then the bottom line, it all depends upon when you get in and when you get out. So what's the future for this? Uh, well, before we even get to that, let's go back. What do, what do typical, uh, what does the banking industry uh, think of this? How can this affect the economy? Right. Well, here's the good news. So for all of this hubbub about a Bitcoin, because there's a fixed number of them out there, the total amount that's being traded or tied up in Bitcoin is actually just a fraction of of any one country's economy. It wouldn't be enough, even if this thing collapsed, even if it had an 80% devaluation and went from $10,000 a coin to $2,000 a coin, it would really have no economic impact to any nation in the world because there's just such a small number of them out there. I think if you take all the coins out there and multiply them by the price, you get something getting close to around, uh, I think it's uh, $16, $17 billion. It's just not enough that's going to cause any big problem. Having said that to you, though, um, this cryptocurrency, and we call it crypto again because it doesn't exist, it's just on computers, it's not the only one out there. Uh, In fact, today we've lost track. We think there's now over 100 of these cryptocurrencies, and there's been talk over the years that maybe Apple should issue a currency or Google should issue a currency. They've got the computer infrastructure, and they're multinational. Uh, So some people have argued, not me, But some people have argued that these kinds of cryptocurrencies may be the way of the future. We'll get beyond all the geopolitics, all the the idea that's associated with the American dollar or the uh, euro dollar, and wouldn't this be the way of the future? So there are some people who are investing strictly because they view this as the future. They love anything tech, and they're here in spades. If Apple does this, would that not be the equivalent of a share or a stock? Well, the idea is that if Apple wanted to, it could become the biggest bank in the world overnight. If, yeah. it, if it wanted to issue these coins and currency, it could do that. Now, it has Apple Pay, but it uses existing currencies to do it. And at least to date, none of those big Internet giants that we know, Facebook, uh, Google, Amazon, and none of them have said this is where they want to go. But frankly, if they watch Bitcoin enough, I can see somebody at one of these places saying, why don't we issue our own coins? And then here's the other thing. Which would you rather buy, a Bitcoin or an Apple coin or a Google coin? 
chances are the, the cachet around those brands would be enough to get many of these investors switching over, assuming that it runs the same way that Bitcoin does. Marvin, this could mean a whole different dimension for Canadian tire money. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, we laugh, but there's no reason that Canadian exactly. Tire couldn't have its own currency. I've heard Starbucks even talking about doing Starbucks coins or McDonald's coins. All of those companies are big enough that they wanted to dabble in this, they could. Truly, this is the wild, wild west. You know, I, I, this is something new. Remember, it's only been around since 2010, seven years of this. For the first two or three years of this, the Bitcoin didn't really go anywhere. It went from basically a dollar to a thousand dollars in six years. It's gone from one thousand to ten thousand in now eleven months. So this is now starting to attract a lot of attention. But we honestly do not know what's causing it to go up, and therefore we do not know why it won't necessarily bounce down tomorrow. It could very well be a speculative bubble, and that when it breaks, it, the fall could be dramatic. You talked about a fixed number of bitcoins, therefore supply and demand. Who decides if there's more? Can there be? Can that be changed? Can there be more added to it? Who does? That. You know, that's a very good question. So remember that I said there was this Japanese name that helped create it, but no one thinks this person really exists in the world. Mm-hmm. That instead it was a group of users. They created a charter when they started Bitcoin. They explained how new Bitcoins were being minted. Every day, uh, right at the moment, about 3,000 more Bitcoins are added to the fold. You can earn Bitcoins by providing services to the Bitcoin people. So in places like uh, Venezuela, uh, you actually see people donating computer power to help this network go, and in exchange they get paid in little fractions of bitcoins for the time and effort they're making. This is where there's about 3,000 more. Today, uh, a little more than half of the total number of bitcoins that were planned to be issued have been issued, so there is a little ways to go, but as the popularity grows, uh, at some point in the two or three years, we're going to hit the cap. Then once it's fixed and no more bitcoins, will that cause the price to go up? Now, something like gold, when I invest in gold, I invest in it knowing not a lot of new gold is going to be added to the pot every year. It's not like we've got some magic formula that I can turn lead into gold the way everybody once thought maybe we could. But with bitcoins, what happens if the charter gets opened by the founders and they say, you know, I said we were going to cap it at, I'll make up a number here, 10 million bitcoins. I think let's cap it at 100 million. All of a sudden, wouldn't that drive down the value of your bitcoin? Absolutely. How do we know it's not going to happen? I don't know because I don't know who formed the charter. They're all anonymous people. If, if it was the Bank of Canada, they can tell us, here's how much our money supply is. By the way, we're planning to add this many new $20 bills or $100 bills. We can make our judgment accordingly by a central banker. We don't even know who's behind all of this. Uh, how do you cash out? Who's making money from this? Is somebody going in, buying low and selling high on a daily basis? <laughs> Well, like all things, think of it a bit like an asset. So let's think of it like a hockey card. Uh, you want that Wayne Gretzky rookie card, and I've got one. You say, Marvin, I'll pay you $1,000 for it. Uh, you can just hold on to it, and there are lots of people who just hold on to their Bitcoins. But at some point, you hear that the Wayne Gretzky rookie card has gone up now to $10,000. You say, well, I've had that long enough. Let me go sell the asset. So there is an exchange, a market. And if you want to sell your Bitcoin, you can make it available, and then people will bid on it. And to date, more people want the Bitcoins than there are Bitcoins to sell. Therefore, the price has been going up and up and up on these exchanges. So uh, who would want to hold this for any length of time? (laughs) (laughs) Well, really. so I I can make both arguments for you. Look, if you got in and put $100 in when the Bitcoin is worth a dollar, and now it's worth $10,000, your $100 investment is now worth uh, $1.6 million. Well, you've ridden the horse pretty well so far. Let's keep going. It's kind of like the, the uh, gambler at the casino table. Yeah. I've been rolling sevens. Let's keep going. <laughs> at some point, some people will say, you know, I've had enough of a run. And that's the great thing about uh, buying and selling, whether it's stocks or bonds or hockey cards or postage stamps or art. As long as there's people interested in it, there will be a market for this. Uh, so how does traditional the traditional financial institutions view this? How are they? What are they thinking about this? Are they worried about this? Are they concerned? Are they getting involved? What are their yeah. thoughts? Well, traditional financial institutions, let's say banks, have more or less ignored this. Uh, they, they are not trying to help people convert their money into bitcoins. They don't have bitcoin accounts. They, they've avoided this like the plague, and they treat it like a novelty, a bit like, shall we say, the pet rock fad or 
or um, uh, I don't know, one of those dolls that went crazy a couple of years ago, Beyblades or something like that. Cabbage Patch Kids. Cabbage Patch Kids, exactly. <laughs> now, having said that, th- so that kind of financial institution has ignored it. The, but the other kind of financial institution are the stock exchanges themselves. And we do see that some of the world's stock exchanges doesn't tend to be the biggest of the big, but some of the world's stock exchanges have now made room for it as part of the exchange. They feel that there's enough people interested in it that they need to include it in what they're doing. And as I said at the start, there are about 100,000 companies that will accept a Bitcoin as payment. They now feel there's enough users, or at least enough of their market users, uh, in this space that they need to accept it. Uh, it would again be, you mentioned Canadian Tire Money. Uh, although Canadian Tire Money has always been traditionally just accepted Canadian Tire, in my life I've actually run across stores, restaurants, even bars that would let me pay for something in Canadian Tire Money, even though that wasn't their currency. They felt it had enough, and that's what's happened with Bitcoin. Enough people are using it. Some people are saying, well, let's accept it. Whether this is going to give it its um, its um, cachet, whether it's going to give it the, its stability, I'm not sure, but uh, there are books, there are many books that have been written on the Bitcoin phenomenon that really do believe this is more the way of the future than the way of the past. If if there are enough users, does that mean it won't collapse? No, you you, you need two things. You have to have users and you have to have, again, a situation where you've got buyers and sellers. Uh, To the extent you've got more buyers than you have sellers, the price goes up. If for some reason it turns the other way around, then you're going to have the big fall. And that's the concern why we might have a bubble break. We could have people who bought into it. They didn't know what they were buying into it. They fall out in love with it. Or if we go back to, say, something like the Zimbabwe situation, there's stability. Suddenly the Zimbabwe economy is looking strong. People will say, well, then I don't need to be in Bitcoin. I'll start selling these things. And if sellers outnumber buyers, that's when the price goes the other way. The other thing that could happen, too, because, again, there's no central bank behind this. All you need is kind of like a WikiLeaks story coming out that says, look, this is a scam, that is a scam, or the system's been hacked, or or people's Bitcoins are disappearing. People could fall out of love with this so fast, you could have such a run, you could see it fall the other direction. But for the moment, Bitcoin has a really popular halo around it, a very positive halo around it. And at the moment, there are more people trying to buy Bitcoins than there are Bitcoin sellers. Is that a halo around a short-term maneuver? And that we don't know, because yeah. we just don't know who's doing the buying. We don't know who's doing the selling. <coughs> we haven't been able <coughs> to talk to those people <coughs> to find out what their motivation is. We just don't know. So it's very hard to predict. It's not like a stock market bubble. So what happens if it does fail? Well, nothing, it, it, because, again, there's no central bank behind it, no economy behind it. Just a lot of people lose a lot of money. <laughs> right. A lot of people lose a lot of money, and if you're speculating, well, you always expect some of your speculating adventures not to turn out. Marvin Ryder has been with his business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University, explaining the Bitcoin to us and its recent surge. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. I'm now choking on it all, too. My <laughs> gosh. <laughs> Good luck to you, Marvin. Thank, Thank you. you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.